Hello again, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. We're on the 14th Sunday of Ordinary Time, chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been following the story of Jesus in Mark chapters 1 through 5, you know of Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus that cast out demons, Jesus that calmed the seas, Jesus that talked about the slow but steady growth of the kingdom of God. But now he and his disciples have returned to his hometown. He's amongst the people that know him uh, since he was a little kid, since his mom and dad moved back to town. And so he goes to the synagogue and he's teaching. And the people in Nazareth have all heard uh, about what he's been doing. And so when they listen to him, reading from one of the scrolls, and it's Isaiah, according to all the gospels, and talking about his mission, they say, where did this man get all this? What kind of wisdom has been given him? What mighty deeds are wrought by his hands? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus tellingly says, a prophet is not without honor except in his native place and among his own kin and in his own house. Well, he's in his native place. And his kin, well, the scripture says, brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. I'm going to get to that later in this podcast. But it says that he was able to do some miracles, but not many, because of the, well, the hostility, the incredulity that he was greeted by. You know, the incarnation, the incarnation is about God becoming a human being. And since we Catholics look at the Gospels through resurrection eyes, that we understand this is God walking down the street of Nazareth, the Son of God in the synagogue, the Son of God proclaiming the meaning of the Scriptures, we think about this differently. You know how you experience in your own life the same kind of disconnection that the people of Nazareth experience? Well, think about your just experience of being a Christian and being a Catholic and believing, growing up with that belief that the people in church were different than everybody else. Well, just in the last 20 years, the sexual abuse crisis and the horrible story of uh, clerics and what they've done um, the failure to deal with it adequately amongst the leadership of the church. And then within the last couple of years, the horrible story about ex-Cardinal Ted McCarrick um, and how that all wound out in New Jersey and, uh, and Washington, D.C. And so the sense of what you take the world to be, how you think about what the world is, how is it that we actually see the divine uh, amongst the human. You know, and I could have just said, instead of talking about the uh, sexual abuse crisis, which everybody's probably heard more than they want to hear about, um, how about just your parish experience? The humanity of your parish priest who's a celibate and is supposed to be, you know, this, this old idea that they're living this life that is so different. And sometimes our parish priests are very holy people. Sometimes they're kind of disappointing. But you can say that about the deacons and the person sitting in the pew next to you. Uh, that whole sense 
of being underwhelmed by humanity, expecting so little of humanity. And so what, who was Jesus in that community that when he came and he spoke in this prophetic voice, when they heard about miracles, what were they really reacting to? Is it the kind of default position of human beings that they really don't expect much from God? They don't expect him really to show up and make a difference. Um, they love to see a miracle, but mostly people struggle with that, I think. Because at the heart of the gospel today, in the gospel of Mark, is the people of Nazareth coming to terms with the incarnation. Why is it that people struggle with belief? So to talk about the risen body of Christ, that's the church, that's you and I. And we say, well, we know the sacraments are holy. My brother, who is a, a non-credentialed theologian, uh, would always say to me that uh, he knows he goes to church because the sacrament's valid. If you get a decent homily, it's a bonus, right? Um, or if people don't annoy you there. Uh, but the idea that the sacraments, the scripture is God speaking to you, you know, this is something that you have to be attentive to because God comes to us in ways that we don't expect. God manifests his presence amongst us, sometimes in surprising ways. And although you can look at the humanity of the church and, and have some sense of connection with how the people in Nazareth must have uh, reacted to Jesus, who they thought uh, of as one of their own, Still, we have in our faith community people like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, all the saints that we look at and we admire for their uncompromising living of the gospel. But let's take a moment, let's talk about scandal and how the people of Nazareth are scandalized because they are scandalized and examine more closely what it is that Mark is about in this gospel. Mark's gospel, chapter six. Well, we remember that in Mark's gospel, chapters one through five, Jesus is proclaimed that the prophecies are fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, to change how you think about the world that is repent and believe the good news. He conquers uh, Satan in the desert. He casts out demons. He cures lepers. He quiets the sea uh, with just a word of, of command. And now he returns home. He's like made a reputation. They already know about it because they mention it in the gospel that uh, he is, uh, he has uh, done these deeds of power. Here's what it says. Uh, so he came to the synagogue. Where did this man get all this? What kind of wisdom has been given him? What mighty deeds are wrought by his hands? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And not, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The word offense is the Greek word scandalison. And it's just the root of our American word. They were scandalized by him. Why? Well, remember in Pakistan, 
they are still accusing Christians of blasphemy and putting them in the prison. There was just a story in the National Catholic News Service about this man and this woman, uh, Catholics, who have been in prison for 10 years because the police found uh, on somebody else's phone, a Muslim's phone, that a blasphemous statement with their name signed to it um, but these people said they, they, they didn't have a cell phone. They were illiterate. Ten years later, the, finally, the cops believed them because their neighbors set them up. Um, and so scandal, how it can be used to control people. And if you remember the story of, of Nazareth, they want to throw Jesus off the hill. But what are the objections? Their objections are this guy doesn't know his place. Their objections are he is human but he pretends to speak as a prophet, and we don't know what these so-called mighty deeds are. And so, where did this man get all this? What he was teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth about releasing sinners, uh, uh, people from their chains. Um, what mighty deeds are wrought by his hands? Maybe they're mocking that he didn't do any miracles at all, but it says, is he not the carpenter? A carpenter, the Greek word is tecton. It really, it's more like handyman. He's a guy that fixes a hole in your roof or he uh, puts together a cupboard for you. Um, he can work with wood and work with stone. But this is, this is basically just a tradesman. And he has no Pharisaic training. It's probably more common for people in that time and that training to be illiterate because the only people who... Uh, receive that training or the, the Pharisees and the scribes has been that way through a, a lot of uh, human human history. We have a lot of illiterate people even now with public education, uh, despite public education, I should say. And so the idea that this guy would be an expert on the scriptures. Uh, and then he's talking about his brothers and sisters and they name them. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. The idea that we know their whole family, they're just, you know, they're just common people. Uh, how can this guy claim that he is going to set prisoners free from their chains and he is the response to the prophecy of Isaiah that the prophet's uh, prophecy is fulfilled? You get where I'm going on this. But you know, it's interesting how that has been played out in Christian history, you know, since the Reformation, where uh, especially the radical reformers and you know, mostly Christianity is disconnected, non-Catholic Christianity is disconnected uh, from the Reformation. Uh, mainline Protestantism has, has really declined. Um, but the, the idea is you can just read this book and figure it out for yourself. Um, you know, the, the thing about it is it's actually reading the book. And so in, in Mark, it gives you the names of James and of Joseph um, as being... Uh, amongst his family members. If you turn, if you put your finger on Mark chapter 6 and you turn to Mark chapter 15, which is the crucifixion, what it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, there are also women looking on from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of the younger, James and Joseph, and Salome. So very clearly it says they, this other Mary is the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, one of the, the sisters. Um, and in fact, the very next day, Mark, uh, it, it said that Mary and Joseph, it drops out James and Salome, but Mary, the mother of Joseph, 
watched where he was put in the tomb along with Mary Magdalene. And then in Mark chapter 16, it's this same Mary that goes with uh, uh, Salome, another woman, uh, to anoint the body that's been in the tomb since, since Friday. And they're all witnesses to the resurrection. What makes this a perfectly poignant story is that um, John chapter 19, verses, verse 25, identifies that Mary as the wife of Cleopas or Clopas. And if you remember in the Gospel of Luke, Clopas is the man that's walking to Emmaus when Jesus joins them. So these are all part of the extended family. Um, uh, and all of these people know Jesus. It's interesting that Clopas is disappointed because he thought he was the prophet. That Mary, this Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, um, is actually a witness to the resurrection, but her husband's walking away from Jerusalem in the other gospel. So, you know, we're getting this story surrounding Jesus and, and his extended family in uh, pretty fragmented terms. But, you know, if you go back to the Old Testament and if you look at how the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the early church relied on. That was especially the Gentile church, overwhelmingly Greek-speaking, Greek-writing. The early followers of Jesus were all Jewish, but obviously that changed very quickly in the first, the second, and the third century. But the word is used... Adelphos, which means brother and sister, is clearly used in the Septuagint to translate words that are really more about um, extended family. It can either mean brother and sister or it can mean cousin, but you always look at the context. It's like words in English that can have the same sound, multiple meanings. Uh, you always look at how the word is used. That's how human language works. And it's pretty clear from the Gospel of Mark that James and Joseph uh, and Salome, their mother, is a different Mary. And so what's the, what's the point of all of that? Well, even in the Protestant Reformation, where they tried to undermine uh, the, the teaching about Mary, that she's just uh, another Jewish woman, no, nothing special, it was an attack on the perpetual virginity of Mary. Because if you can discredit the perpetual virginity of Mary, you've discredited Catholicism, and basically now everybody is for himself. Um, because there is no authoritative teaching. For us, the authoritative teaching is the teaching of the church and her perpetual virginity. And it is supported by this fragmentary um, uh, discussion of Jesus' extended family in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 6. Um, but where does this all go? Well, here's the thing, and we're going to turn to it. Do you actually believe in miracles? Because if you don't believe in miracles or you have trouble with miracles or you don't understand what a miracle is and what it's not, you're going to have trouble with Jesus. And the way that this gospel ends is, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his native place and among his own kin and his own house. His native place, Nazareth. Uh, he has family members that don't believe in him. 
and in his own house there's some struggles. So he's not able to perform any mighty deeds there, apart, he says, from curing a few sick people by laying hands on them. He was amazed at the lack of their faith. But what I like about it is kind of the subtle humor of Mark. He couldn't do many de- mighty deeds there. Oh, yeah, he, he did cure, cure some people. But uh, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Uh, they don't believe what they hear. They don't believe what they see. How do you talk to people like that? So let's talk about miracles. Miracles. You don't get very far as a Catholic without miracles, right? Uh, And if you look at the miracles of Jesus, they really all follow very similar patterns to the same miracles in the in the Old Testament. Um, Lame people uh, can walk again, uh, but they're not given wings to fly. The blind see, but they don't get x-ray vision. The dead come back to life, but they're going to die again. All these miracles are really natural signs. And it's the sign that um, God understands the laws of physics and biology uh, differently than we do. There are still laws, but within the parameters of those laws, that's where miracles happen. Uh, water is changed into wine. St. Augustine said, well, that miracle happens all the time. It rains. It goes into a vine. There's this process of, of producing grapes, then fermentation, and you get wine. And so miracles somehow participate in what is already natural processes. Storms uh, stop, but they don't turn into clouds of butterflies. And so when you're looking at miracles, there is a sign about what nature is and what it's not. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas said that death, because raising from the dead is the fundamental miracle power over life and death. He said that St. Thomas Aquinas following Genesis uh, you know, and the fact that uh, Adam lived almost a thousand years. So the idea was that human beings didn't have restrictions on them. It's sin that brought these restrictions, these shorter lifespans, this disease into the world. Modern science would look at it very differently. Uh, let's say like uh, cancer, it's a mutation of cells. And mutations are necessary for evolution to to happen. But not all mutations are advantageous. Possibly mostly they're not. And uh, the dark side of the capacity of a human cell to mutate is cancer. And so, you know, the idea of miracles, that word is never really used in the New Testament. They're always called signs. And so if you think of miracles in some magical sense, probably you read the scriptures in a different way that they're intended. If you see instead all of Jesus' miracles as a sign of the presence of God in creation, then you're seeing the real reality of why these signs happen. A priest friend of mine says, for those who pray, there are no coincidences. For those uh, who don't pray, only coincidences are possible. Um, the idea that uh, God is in his reality. You pray and you, it's a conversation. Someone gets better. Uh, 
you look at Lourdes and all the examples of miracles in the in in our own day and age. What do you do with that? Because the truth of the matter is, you cannot explain Jesus without his miracles. Why did people follow someone who claimed he was ultimately the Messiah? That he referred to himself as the Son of Man. That he talked about the end of time. That he predicted he'd be crucified, but he would rise from the dead. What made any of this plausible? Well, it's those deeds of power. What is it that the people in Nazareth find most objectionable about him? This guy does miracles? See, he's not saying he prays to God and his prayers are answered, now your son is healed. What he says is, be healed. He just takes God out of the middle of it and puts himself into that place. That's not how you and I think about miracles. So if someone comes under their own power and heals, um, it's this cognitive dissonance. What you believe your neighbor is really like is not who he really is. But you know what's at the heart of it? It's the resurrection. Um, can you believe not simply that the dead come back to life? Because, you know, uh, modern science can do that kind of miracle. If you have this... Uh, complete stoppage of the heart. Um, your brain can still stay alive for, I think it's about five minutes, although the electrical activity in the brain is sporadic. But if someone can get to you and get your heart going in five minutes, you have a good shot of returning to uh, mostly a normal life. Beyond that, there's too much brain damage. So what do you do when he brings uh, the little girl back to life? which was last Sunday's gospel. Or how about Lazarus, who's in the tomb for, uh, for three days, and he brings them back to life. They'll all die again. But it's power over this natural world. What's the difference between that and the resurrection? There's a difference between revivification and a completely different world. And that's what miracles point to, that there's this other world that is right there with this world. It's what makes God present in our life. It's who answers prayers. It's what we think it means when we're baptized, we receive communion, we're confirmed in the Holy Spirit, that we are someone to God, that the kingdom of God now dwells in us, that we might live eternally in that kingdom with Jesus. Because that is the gospel, that you live and are in union with God, which is what heaven is. Uh, not a condominium with 131 flavors of, of yogurt. It all gets tedious. Everything gets tedious. The one thing that always gives life is the participation in love. And so think of the proclamation of miracles, especially the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, because the very people that Nazareth says makes Jesus nothing but human end up being the witnesses to his resurrection from the dead. That even humanity is drawn into this great plan of God. And what do we think about it? Well, it's the same human dynamics that are present amongst us. It's these Christians accused of blasphemy by Muslims in Pakistan. Um, why? Well, maybe they just want their property, or this is 
they hate Christians or whatever it is. But the, the idea of blasphemy as being uh, the, the pretext for capital punishment. This is why Jesus is crucified. It's why uh, these Pakistani men and women are put into prison. And so in the early church, Peter and Paul go out and preach that Jesus is the Son of God, risen from the dead, and he will judge us all at the end of time. This is St. Paul, this is St. Peter, whose feast we just celebrated. They're risking being stoned to death by the Jews and crucified. Uh, by the Romans. Why would they do that if it wasn't true? Or the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is, you know, this ball in play with some Christians as they try to make light of, the, of her perpetual virginity or uh, believe that Jesus had a girlfriend. And any of the ways these kind of weird Christians go flying off into, into um, outer space. It's because they want to take the divine and they want to bring it down to just now human terms. That's what this gospel is about. So do you remember how we started? We started by talking about scandal. And boy, there's some scandals. I talked about uh, priestly abuse. Um, I've talked about all the leadership struggles I think that we have, you know, and we go through those periodically in the Catholic Church. I've talked about your dissatisfaction with your poor, wretched, parish priest. Um, it's the humanity of the church, just like the humanity of, the, of uh, Christ that brings us into disrepute, uh, scandalize people, although I think some people go out of their way looking for scandal. Uh, but they believe that present in all of it is the divinity. divinity. Of, um, of the sacraments, um, God's voice in the scriptures. How about the Holy Father, 2,000 years there, as the living voice of authority, the heir of Peter and Paul? You know, there's a lot in this story in uh, Mark chapter 6, and I think it's interesting as we talk about how the same dynamics present in Nazareth are still cooking in our world, whether it's the denunciation of Asia Bibi and this other couple in Pakistan, a supposed blasphemers against Muhammad, who uh, uh, is the basis of the prophet for Islam, um, whether it's just the skepticism of whether miracles can happen at all, it's you sitting in your room and wondering if anybody's even listening when you pray. These are all the things that drag us down into the everyday. And Jesus keeps trying to lift up our eyes, point us to the presence of God amongst us. Miracles help us over a bump in the road. Okay, great. But miracles are a sign that we're not alone. And so when we hear the authentic voice of God proclaimed, boy, that in itself is a miracle because a miracle is just a sign of God's presence amongst us. Why are the people in Nazareth scandalized? Why are people scandalized by the church? Maybe just one possibility there is that their ideas of God are distorted, that their belief that God couldn't dwell amongst sinful humanity God would never make his place with us. And so for we Christians, we point out the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, 
although he was God, emptied himself and became, as St. Paul said, a slave, a tecton, a handyman, so that he could come into the depths of our own human condition and point out to us the presence of God. Pope Benedict XVI said, Jesus didn't bring world peace. Jesus didn't solve all disease. He didn't conquer all evil. What he did was he brought us the awareness of God in the midst of all our struggles. So, my friends, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, just like marriage between Christ and his church, fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. Because it so often happens uh, in these gospels in, uh, in Mark. Listen to how the gospel ends up today. He was amazed at their lack of faith. We've heard this before in the gospel of Mark. It's what Jesus said to the crowd gathered outside that dead girl's room. It's what he said to his own disciples in the boat on a stormy sea. Don't you have any faith? Something to pray about, something to look for for a sign. This has been Father John Arnold, and God bless you. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. If you like this, um, subscribe, hit the subscribe button, uh, share it with a friend, uh, spread the good news.